Welcome to the DFD, a podcast dedicated to all things dairy farming. Each episode, we chat with industry leaders who share insights and their experiences into the dairy business. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the DFD podcast. I'm your host, Keith Schweitzer, and I'm excited to have uh, Dr. Chris Church back uh, this afternoon. Chris, you're our first time two-timer, so you're the first person that we've asked to come back, which I'm pretty excited about. I know uh, we've had some pretty good discussions in the last uh, little bit about uh, some transition cow stuff, so I'm excited to talk to you about that today. So why don't you tell uh, some of the guests out there that uh, might not know you a little bit about yourself and kind of some of your new endeavors? Sure. Thanks for having me back, Keith. It is a, a pleasure and an honor to uh, yeah to be the first repeat. I guess maybe I uh, didn't get uh, everything shared properly the first time, so hopefully we can uh, remedy that this time. Um, but yeah, so my background, I spent 15 years in, in clinical dairy practice in southwestern Ontario and then moved over to Alanco Animal Health for six years, where I traveled across Canada uh, specializing in transition health. So going in with local vets and, and nutritionists doing troubleshooting, problem solving. And then um, I love new challenges and I love trying to figure out um, answers to problems that we all think of. So my current challenge is um, I'm actually returning to school, uh, going back to the University of Guelph for an MBA, and I'm uh, hoping to focus on the correlation of the health and production metrics on dairies to net profitability. So that sounds like a very broad topic with a lot of uh, nuance, I guess, involved with something like that. So that's, that's exciting. And I think we'll get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Cause I know I, uh, I asked some questions there on uh, Twitter about, uh, do you think uh, three and a half kilos of components per cow is possible? So I think that's a good, uh, segue to that. Um, but first I know your, your key focus over the last few years has been, uh, transition cows and, and how they can set a, a dairy up for success. So, I just want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the disease impacts. Uh, you know, we're coming into some uh, heat stress into the summer months here. Um, maybe talk a little bit about that and uh, just some general things on on disease and some of the things that can kind of, you know, almost uh, keep a producer back from from hitting some of these, uh, these numbers that we're going to talk about later. So I think the first thing we talk about, uh, I ran a poll on Twitter a couple of weeks ago was about uh, different strategies to feed dry, dry cows. So whether it be, you know, a close up far off uh, system, a, a low energy diet, or like people like to maybe refer to it as Goldilocks, um, uh, feeding DCAT or a calcium or a mineral binder or something like that. So in your experience, I guess, what do you think is the best way to set a transition cow up for success? Maybe I will change gears a little bit and change your change the order I answer. One of the things I'd love to say to producers is everybody's on you know a different stage in the journey, but I think a cow is a cow is a cow, and we're all kind of on the same highway, if you will. Um, I like to say that if you look over the last thirty years of our industry, 
And if you say that the, the cow is a car, uh, a race car, we would really, with our modern dairy cows, we would like to do 200 miles an hour and not have the engine fall out if we hit a pebble. So that would be the best. <laughs> yes. And you know, once upon a time, the way to get more milk was, uh, so to say 25 years ago, feed more corn and you got more milk and you got sore feet and you got burned out cows and you had high call rates and you couldn't get cows pregnant. So that's not our goal. Our goal is to have um, lots of uh, productivity with happy, healthy cows that are easy to get pregnant. So if you go back 30 years ago, the, the first big change was, you know, if you think of genetics, every straw is like getting a new car. Um, so every new calf that hits is a brand new vehicle. So we keep increasing our genetic gain. And once upon a time, we used to say, ah, oh, you don't want to push the cow. Well, now I think the genetics has actually got ahead of a lot of us. And we're now trying to say, oh boy, it's not that we're going to push them. It's how do we give them what they need to get out of the way? And so we used to be say 28 uh, liters average. And in the, the mid nineties, we realized that in order to get um, the most milk, because we're limited for dry matter intake, we need to have great forage and, and limit the amount of um, off-farm purchases if we can to be most profitable. Um, so, you know, big move through the 90s to have um, really great forages. And mm -hmm. most of us in Canada are there, but that was sort of, so I would say step number, number one was genetics. Number two was, was great forages. And then for vets, throughout the early 2000s, we spent pretty much all of our time on repro. And we realized that we had to get days in milk in a herd down. So you, you figure your barn is limited for slots. And we know that a cow that's 150 days in milk is more efficient at making milk than a cow that's 250 days in milk just because of where she is on her lactation curve. So we need to back up the whole barn for every slot to be earlier days in milk. And how do we do that? Well, we get cows pregnant faster. And that's why vets spend so much time on that side of it. And so now as we're seeing people who are using the best genetics, they're producing great forage, they're you know, over 30 on preg rate, we're, we're really hitting a lot of the keys. And now we're moving into, into comfortable, more comfortable barns. So we're going into to new freestalls. It might be robots, it might not be, but we're, we're seeing you know, benefits of sand. And as we check off all those things, then you sort of say, okay, what's next on the list? And that brings me the long way around to answering your question on, I think transition is the next big frontier that if we want to, to make um, two kilos of butterfat or 50 liters of milk or whatever, however we want to um, set our goal, we need to set the cow up to milk well for this lactation and how they transition is going to be the next key. God, I, I totally agree with that because uh, I've mentioned it on farm before too, is that anywhere that you use the word transition on a dairy farm, there's issues that come with that, whether it be transitioning calves off milk, whether it be transitioning dry cows into lactating cows. Um, those seem to be where our hiccups are. And I guess our, our goal is to kind of mitigate that so that, you know, we do get out of that cow's way because you're right. Like they're, every cow in the barn now is like Sidney Crosby or an F1 race car, whatever analogy that you want to use. It's like, we've got to get out of their way to make sure that they can express um, their genetic potential. So 
Yeah, I think that brings up a really good question. So if you were to quote somebody like Gordy Jones, who I think most of your listeners would probably have heard over the years, he likes to say that cows love boredom. And every time that you change something on a dairy, the cow thinks she's going to die. And so don't change anything. Don't have too many pen changes. Don't have too many ration changes. Unfortunately, weather changes and we can't control it. But then you get back into, you know, as they go through the, their lactation, they, there are constant changes and transition is by far the biggest change. And so how do we deal with something that is inevitable without allowing them to want to die? So in your crystal ball, if Dr. Chris Church had to design a dry cow transition facility, what would he be looking at? I think that, that, that there are a few keys. Um, if, and why don't we start with facility and then move into to diet after? Yep. But it, if moving, um, it, well, picture all the things that could happen to a dry cow. So, hey, cows are milking really well and I'm having trouble drying them off. So I'm going to take that cow and put her into a separate pen uh, with a poorer forage and milk her once a day. So there's one change. And yep, she dries down in milk, but she also stops eating because we've messed up her routine. Then we take her and we put her in a far off group. And then we take her somewhere else and we put her in a close up group. And then we take her and we put her in a cabin pen. And then we take her and we put her in a fresh group and then a high group. Um, Every time we move a cow into a new group of cows, she will stop eating for a day or two. And, you know, there's lots of studies that have shown that. So what we've got to do is say, oh, crap, we don't, we dry matter intake is something we want to control, even if we're going to change what's in her feed. So how do we do that without having the dry matter drop? So you can move a cow from place to place, but you've got to do it um, almost a little bit, you know, the extreme would be like our, our swine colleagues and do all in all out where you're not changing the group of cows. You're moving everybody together. So you think, okay, well, how, how the heck do I do that? Well, when it comes time to dry off and, and I like to say to people, stand back and, and try to make your life easy. So could you do dry offs once a week? So say every Tuesday, I'm going to move two cows or four cows together into a dry off pen and I'm going to milk them once a day, but they're going to stay together for, for seven days. No one else is going in there so that it's a stable group. Then I'm going to take them and put them into the far off group and it's stable. Um, Nigel Cook from Wisconsin has got a great plan that he presents where you could, if you're building a brand new dry cow facility, you would set up your pen and you, you can move that group of cows along pen by pen by pen. And so if you think of one end is the dry, the, the, uh, the new far offs and the other end is where they're going to calve. You're just slowly swinging the gates and moving them from one pen to the next as a group together yep. so that at least there's no change in um, the hierarchy of the cows. Cause you've seen it. You put a new dry cow in oh, and everybody fights with her. Um, and it doesn't matter if she was boss in the previous group, it's going to change for the next group. So just trying to minimize, keep though that core group of girls together as much as you can through the system is one key um, set yourself up for success. Yeah. And I know it's funny though, because you even see it with cows too, where they're in the same group, but you do a pen move and then they're 
act like a bunch of maniacs for an hour or two until they kind of calm down and come to their senses a bit. And then it's like back to business as normal of being a dry cow. So, um, yeah, with the, with the transition thing, it, it's interesting because there is so many different things out there right now. Like, and I think part of our challenge is, is that what fits best for what farm? Because not all farm, no farm is created equal and no farm is going through a set set of circumstance or, or challenges at that time. You know, one farm might be, you know, they're on the verge of going to a new facility. So maybe they're pushing everything to the limits and maybe you've got that same a producer down the road and, you know, they just moved into a new facility. So everything's kind of, you know, hunky dory and, and going along kind of seamlessly at the time. So, um, I think it's really important for us to kind of pick a strategy on a farm by farm basis. And I know it's hard. It's easy. I guess it's easier for us to kind of talk cookie cutter, but in reality and trying to implement that into the on farm, it's, it's much more difficult. Sure. sure. So, and you know, everything comes back to the balancing act of where are you in the journey? You know, what can you afford? Um, are you building new? Are you, trying to use your current facilities. Um, some of the things you'll hear is, geez, my facilities, my mixer or my facilities don't fit the size of my herd. Unfortunately, unless you're building brand new, that's always a challenge because mm -hmm. as you, you know, even your mixer, you're, if you milk a thousand cows or 50 cows, the mixer that you have for your herd size is always too big for your dry cows. So yeah. you've got to try to make that work. Um, what I tend to suggest is uh, you were asking about, you know, diet types. I'm a huge fan of the so-called Goldilocks diet. So low energy lets, because if we, if we travel back to what I said earlier, high, uh, really great forages make you money on a dairy, but then those forages are so rich that they're just too good for our dry cows. We want our dry cows to, kind of get ready for the marathon by being lean and mean. So we want to have low energy going through the liver to get it ready for when they um, hit lactation. So the best way to do that is to, to either limit feed them, which is pretty well impossible unless you were in a tie stall situation. So how mm -hmm. do we limit them? Well, we feed them low energy. And I think that diet is, is as a vet, I saw way less DAs and less ketosis cases on it. Now we still do have some subclinical ketosis that we're struggling with, but it is one of the, the best things that I think any farm could do. Then, then you could press and say, okay, well, I want my cake and eat it too. I want really healthy cows, which I think the goal is to, to go on the, the, the Goldilocks diet. But I also want the best milk production I can get. In that situation, the research tends to say, if we go low energy with our far offs, which is the most important for health, we really mm -hmm. have to feed our far offs well, which, you know, we used to treat in a lot of cases, we tr treated the far offs like um, outcasts. Yeah. Know, they were put in the worst place <laughs> on the true. farm. Yep. They were fed with a bale somewhere and they were forgotten about. And yep. we now understand that we need to feed them a really nice, consistent, um, diet in a comfortable place. And if we can get that right, then health is going to be improved at freshening. 
if we want to go to the next step, we can try to attempt um, the two group system. And a lot of guys go, ooh, two group feeding. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first of all, you've got to have a way to separate the cows. But most of the time, uh, I think probably 95% of nutritionists would be trying to, to mix a base forage for both groups. So, you know, the same, you go and you feed your dry cows, and then you would add some extra energy for your close-up group to the same forage, and then go out and feed that group. Um, would that, in your estimation, is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, there's more, I know I'm doing more of that on farm because you're right, like the limitation a lot of times is either the pens or um, the mixer. So sometimes you go into a farm and and they have all the dry cows in one pen, you know, maybe it's a straw pack and they just stay there and it stays static or they're adding, they're like they might have static groups there, maybe they're adding in cows once a week and, and doing it like that or they're moving them on to, you know, far off freestalls into close up pack or something like that and then i think that hybrid system feeding system maybe works a little bit better because then you can still utilize your mixer better you can put more um forage or you can get more feed in there so it mixes better and then you know you just stop and you throw either your decad or maybe some energy or maybe a little bit more protein or something like that in there to kind of bump them up for that last uh that last push before they calve because i think you're right like if we can control what happens in the far off, I think it's less important what we do on the energy side of things, not on anything else. I'm just saying on energy side of things on uh, what we do in the close up, because I think that cow metabolically is already gearing up for her next challenge. And I think by, you know, maybe feeding that extra little bit of energy or a little bit more um, amino acids or something like the, that in there might get her, uh, might get her kicked into gear a little bit better. So I know there's a little bit of challenge. Um, I kind of hear with colostrum sometimes, but I'm not sure. There's a lot of anecdotal thoughts out there about that one, but I'm not sure if uh, there's not a lot of research on it. I know, you know, I've talked about it in the past as well, but I, I often wonder about the far off and close up systems, especially, you know, it's different if you're milking 2000 cows and you have um, quite a, quite a bit more calvings and, and maybe you have a different, a different transition barn, um, where you do have a specified area for close-ups and you have those individual pens for far off. So, you know, cows are kind of staying with their cohort. Um, but I find it challenging here in Ontario just to, or even Canada, I guess, is to make that far off close-up work just because you're changing a pen and changing feed at the same time, which I think can kind of that's that's being on a razor's edge right there. I think you can change one thing at a time and and get away with it. But if you're changing two things at a time, it could set you up for a disaster. But lots of farms make it work. So yeah, and that's why you know even if you could keep this idea and let's call it co-mingling rather than um, moving, um, because cows are going to move around. But it's the the fact of when you you move different cows into different pens that you get the problem. So. Can you at least keep two or four girls together that are close in calving date sort of through your system? So, you know, every Tuesday you, you dry cows off and then maybe every Wednesday or maybe the same day you then, as you, you know, your bat pen is getting full, you pick the next four cows that need to go into the, the close up pen. And it seems like a small thing, but at least it's trying to keep it. And I always say it's like for, 
for anybody who remembers grade nine, getting on the bus for the first time, <laughs> you know, you were top of the, you were king of the hill in grade eight. The big and, fish in the pond, if you will. Yes. <laughs> and what do you do when you get on the bus? You you look for your buddy and you hope that he saved you a seat at the front because you don't want to go sit with the big kids at the back. And just having those pairs or those quads, however you can move them through together, just gives you some, um, a little bit less stress of, and, and you know, it, the thing I always say is that's not a big effort. It just takes some um, sticking in the back of your mind to add it to your list of things to do. Um, it's not like you got to build a new facility for that um, to be trying to much like we're trying to do with, with pairing calves. It's, it's just a little bit of a mindset change. With the, with the changing of the diets, I guess, when you're going from a far off to close up or maybe some of the kind of the hybrid stuff that we're doing where, you know, you're adding that extra in, does DCAD make sense? Like, uh, can you maybe explain um, from a metabolic standpoint what is happening when we are talking DCAD? Sure. I think everybody realizes cow goes to calf. She has to pull a huge amount of calcium um, from her reserves problem is, is her body's not primed for it. And that's why you, you could get a down cow with milk fever. The, the way the body works is the acid base level of her blood will allow her to start changing how she primes herself for using calcium. So in the, 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 the number one thing we've done in Canada for the longest time is, is you, you hear people talk about the potassium level of close-up diets. If you feed a lot of alfalfa or you've got a rich potassium hay, potassium will change the, the, the acid level of her blood that makes it tougher for her to absorb calcium. So instead of pulling it out, out of her bones and out of the diet. So it acts as an antagonist. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And so the, the, the easy solution has always been, hey, let's not feed alfalfa to close-up cows. Let's have some old grass hay um, that we can have for that group. And that's why nutritionists spend so much time trying to balance that ration for low potassium. So it works not too bad. And probably 65, 70, 80% of Canada tries to follow that as a prevention method. Now, the problem you get into is, so say you're in Newfoundland and you spread a lot of manure on a small area of land, manure is high in potassium, all your forages are high in potassium, you tend to see a lot of milk fever. So, okay, we can't do that. Or um, what's the other thing most of our farms do? Well, we all give calcium pills to all of our older cats as a standard operating procedure. And if you think, well, why do we do that? Well, we're kind of blanket preventing problems. Mm -hmm. And if you think of it, well, if our low potassium plan worked perfect, we shouldn't have to use calcium pills. And you could say, well, it's cheap insurance. Well, it's still something. It's like saying, well, I have to drench all my fresh cows with glycol. Hmm. Then something's not working in the system. We should probably back up and fix it. So as an industry, we're now asking that question, is there a better way we could do that? And if we look just south of the border, they've gone 65, 70% using DCAD um, idea. And so basically what they're doing is saying, hey, potassium is only one of the things that can antagonize the system. What if we play with some of the other um, anions or, or um, 
minerals in there to make it so that instead of being antagonist, antagonistic to the way she uses her calcium, we could use it positive, but we actually get her to start priming her bones um, for calcium. And by doing that with um, you know, a couple of different things like um, chlorides. And so if you go back 20 years ago, we used to actually add some salts or add some acids to the feed to make this work. Yep. They were a little bit bitter. So we all remember that intakes could drop. And now the, the companies that produce those have come out with better methods for trying to incorporate them without them tasting any different. And what we're trying to do is, is basically acidify the cow's blood so that she uses her calcium um, more effectively before she calves. So is it minerals that cause the pH in the urine to drop when they're doing that then? Like, is it just the cows trying to excrete all those minerals that are keeping her trying to acidify her blood and then she processes them through her through kidneys and out the, out the back end? In a nutshell, yes. It's basically okay. the, the hydrogen ions that are attached to the minerals that okay. are actually causing the change. And so the cow is kicking out those extra hydrogens. Um, hydrogen is, is something that's really acidic. And that's actually what changes as she's trying to, you know, so we make her, her blood go a bit acid. She then makes her urine go acid, trying to get rid of those. And we mm -hmm. can test the urines to see how well we're doing with keeping the blood stable. Yeah. Cause I think the basis on a lot of the anionic or decad products is hydrochloric acid, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, that's why you so. can use a couple of different methods of doing it. It could be the, the hydrogen we're getting from the hydro, um, from the HCL or, um, it, and it, it's, you can balance a couple different things. So over the years, that's where, um, sulfur has played into the, the equation, um, in some people's calculations and that's yep. kind of getting, getting way into the weeds. But. That's into the weeds. Yeah. I'm not sure if I want to go that far down that rabbit hole <laughs> right now, but I know I'm using more DCAD, I would think probably maybe 60 or 65%, but it is working. What I would love to say to your listeners is if we back up, say 20 years, um, and we talked about ketosis, everybody would think of a clinical ketosis, you know, cow with dry manure and no milk, it's not eating. And we did a, uh, we tested her urine with some powder and it went really purple. Mm -hmm. and those were quote-unquote clinical. You could see them with your eyes. There was something wrong with the cow. Over time, we got into actually having the physical blood tester that you could stand beside the cow, put the drop on, and test her blood levels to see um, how fine the levels of, of ketones were in her blood. So you could actually find the ones that were invisible ketosis, the subclinical ketone, yeah. ketosis. And that opened up a whole new bucket of worms for us that – yeah, we don't want any clinically sick cows, but we think the ones that are visible, they, they lose some milk, they lose conception rate, and they may get, go on to get other problems. So, hey, if we can micromanage that as a, um, a measure of the big picture and keep that to a certain level, then we can do better overall. Well, we're starting to see the same thing with um, milk fever. Milk fever is clinical down cow, but there's something called hypocalcemia, where yeah. if we could stand beside the cow and test them all for blood, we would see some of them are lower than they should be. And we think that those cows get more other health hiccups 
RPs, DAs, uh, maybe even mastitis, um, that if we could keep their calcium levels just perfect, we would eliminate those other things. There's not a, a usable blood test for beside the cow yet, but mm -hmm. as universities are running all those samples back and looking at a whole bunch of different things, they're trying to look at everything from, you know, hey, how does this low potassium thing work for the, the subclinical hypocalcemia? How does DCAD work? How does using calcium pills work? And we realize that we don't have a perfect system yet, that DCAD is better than, um, than low potassium, that um, calcium pills are okay, that, but they're not really perfect either. So we're still looking as an entire industry for the next answer to really prevent this. But I think each of those things moves the needle a little more. And you could even throw in something like Exilite, um, some of the mm -hmm. binders that you could feed. Um, the, you know, but they come with quite an expense, um, but they're another option for people who really want to try to nip some of these things in the bud. Can we, like on the, on the blood calcium and, and mineral levels in the blood, I guess, can we maybe talk about phosphorus quickly? Because I know you often hear with low calcium and fresh cows, you also hear about low phosphorus. So I know like in soil, it's very slow to mobilize. Like, do you see that in cows as well? Yeah, phosphorus is a really funny one. It, it is tied in the cow's blood to calcium. So if calcium goes down, phosphorus will go down. So if you've got a down cow and you didn't know how to treat it and you had a blood machine sitting there and you tested them both, if calcium's low and phosphorus is low, you treat calcium. If calcium's normal and phosphorus is low, okay, for some reason it didn't come up, it dropped by itself and we need to treat the phosphorus. On those ones, those I would say, you've gotta be careful of hanging too much importance on them because we, no one has been able to prove what causes consistently low phosphorus cows, but we've got lots of stuff that says that probably 95% of the story is the calcium side of it. So I wouldn't make any big ration changes based on have a, a low FOS cow um, because the, the knee jerk reaction would say, Hey, I've got uh, a couple of low FOS cows that went down. Can we put more phosphorus in the close up diet? If you do that, you'll drive calcium down in the cow and you'll get more milk fevers. So you, you probably won't solve your low FOS problem, but you'll create a whole new set of problems. So it's almost one that I don't want to say you want to ignore. You want to ignore trying to prevent it. I think you see those as one-off down cows that you need to treat with FOSS and don't get too excited about changing um, everything unless you do have other milk fever issues that you know are calcium. Go after that primarily. Okay. Yeah, because it's it's something that's talked about a lot. And I mean, I will be the first one to admit I don't totally understand on how that works like on a blood level, but... Uh, no, it's always, it's always good to learn and it's always talked about. So I just wanted to kind of share that with the, uh, with the listeners. So the other thing I kind of, you mentioned there, um, was ketosis and conception. And it's been pretty apparent lately that ketosis is a conception killer. And I was wondering if maybe you could touch on that a little bit. Sure. Um, the, probably the best 
study that ever came out that, you know, and it's one of those things that we've always realized, but probably the best study came out, oh, about a little over 10 years ago. And it was a, the, the goal of the study was to look at precinct. They had 6,000 cows in this study and they gave 3,000 of them pre-sync and 3,000 of them just a normal off-sync and they looked at their conceptions. And they could tell that there was something else underlying the groups. So they had transition data on all 6,000 cows. So they started going through that and they found that the, the, the cows that had no transition issues, the pre-sync was head and shoulders better. They had a 53% first conception rate in those cows. And you'd go, oh, that's what we all want. And, and that was better than just the straight off sync. So they sort of proved that pre-sync worked. But they had this subset of cows that had all these um, hit, um, lower conception rates. And they could link all of those back to a transition hiccup. So, and then they could split it out and say, well, was it an RP? Was it a lameness? Was it a botrytis? Was it a ketosis? And the, the worst thing on the list to nuke conception rate was clinical ketosis. Those cows dropped from a 53% conception to a 28 conception. And if you think that those follicle, the, 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 the egg that's dropping when you're breeding at first breeding is being made, unfortunately, during transition, if we have a low energy situation um, and we've got any of these transition problems, um, but, but ketosis especially, then we seem to have a poor conception here. Yeah, I think uh, I always kind of laugh when I talk or think about ketosis is because I find ketosis is a chicken or an egg. Which came first the, from the DA? Was it the ketosis or did the cow get a DA? Or, you know, what came first? Was it the, uh, did she get a DA from an RP or did she get, you know, like like questions like that, I think. And I know when I think about ketosis, it's like it's always that underlying thing. And I think it's really important for some of these herds you know, if you are having a conception rate issue, maybe the first thing you grab is, is your ketone tester and just yep. start, just pull blood and see, see how cows are transitioning because there were some anecdotal numbers, um, from a genetics company that I seen came out and it was around, uh, linear score in conception at first test. And it was funny because if the linear score was higher, their conception was lower. So it kind of made me think, well, are they getting ketotic or is, is there maybe a secondary mastitis infection and maybe it's activating the immune system and pulling back on energy? Like, is there something going on there? So, well, and the other thing you've got to, that, that is really always hard as a researcher is just because things are correlated doesn't mean they cause each other. So like you say, yeah. if you've got a poor conception herd that has high mastitis rates um, or high cell counts, is it, the and, and you know this is a joke but drownings are highly correlated with ice cream sales <laughs> because yeah. when do yeah. you drown well you probably go to the beach in the summer to swim yeah when do you eat ice cream in the summer and yeah. they're not correlated they're sorry they're, they don't cause each other and so if you even if you come back to net profitability um herds with low cell counts are more profitable yeah. And you could say, oh, yeah. well, cell count, you know, you get um, high cell count cows don't milk as much as a low cell count cow because you get damage in the udder. But 
maybe it's just that guys that, you know, uh, for whatever reason, facilities, whatever, um, they're struggling with higher cell counts, um, then they struggle with conception rates. And yeah. so it's, 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 yeah, they're, they're correlated, but is it a cause? Yeah, it's, it's hard yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah. Like if it's, uh, if it's a high cell count, because there is, you know, you could get a load of shavings or something like that that has Klebsiella in it, and you know, you have a whole bunch of clinical mastitis. Yeah, and cows don't catch well. Right, it's hard to catch when they're. Sense, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, oh, that's good. So, as I kind of teased a little bit earlier, uh, one thing that we were talking about was uh, three and a half kilos of combined components. So, what we're talking about there is, you know, essentially, you know, how do we get to two kilos of butter fat and a kilo and a half of protein? What are some of the things we got to think about? And I think this is something that I'm over the summer and spring and summer, I'm going to maybe talk a little bit more about on the podcast with some, with some people in the industry, um, and some producers, but, uh, like, what do we have to do as advisors and as dairy producers to get to some number like that? You know, I know the U S industry talks about six pounds of components. Well, I did a quick little bit of math and this is like just over seven and a half air pounds of components. So like this is pushing, you know, the 99th percentile of herds in, in the world. But what are some of the things that would set a producer up for success um, to help achieve those goals? You know, it, it basically comes back to that. Our initial discussion is how do we get out of a cow's way? So how do we make it really comfortable for her to eat and go lay down? And then you've got to stand back and look at your own big picture. And, you know, this is where we start getting into ratios of um, overcrowding, undercrowding. Um, but it, it's essentially setting up your list of, of what is your goal? What are you willing to, how far down this rabbit hole are you willing to go? So if we go back 15 years ago, Anyone who was on this journey would have been willing to listen to sprinklers and fans for their high milking cows. And if you had a parlor, we knew the holding area was a bad place in the summer um, because it was just such a hot spot for the cow to stand. So, hey, let's put heat abatement there and let's put it over the milk cows. Well, now as we get into it, we start to say, ah, you know what? There's a bottleneck over transition cows. You know, if they, if their intakes drop around that time, we're going to lose milk. Well, now we've been able to back it up and say that heat affects dry cows. And once upon a time, if I had told the producer that they'd say, I got a lot of other bigger bottlenecks to worry about before I'm going to have that conversation. But now we're further down that highway. We fixed a lot of the other bottlenecks, speed bumps. And so now you look at it and that cow, um, cows that calve in the summer with no heat abatement, milk less than their same herd mates that calve in the winter. So, okay, so we want to cool the cow, but they've even got down to the, the other um, levels of this. Calves born from those cows, they grew slower. Well, and now you follow that through, they milk less as well. Yeah. And you could say, well, maybe they milk less because they grew slower. But, you know, if it makes, if you could say that that correlation goes all the way through, um, there's a really nice graph out there that shows that, you know, cows, um, calves that were being carried in the summer didn't milk as well as calves that were being carried in the winter. 
Yeah. And so, okay. So is there some merit to putting more fans and maybe even sprinklers over our dry house? Um, it's a really good discussion. And as you start to see people, and again, it's people who want to be on the edge that are going to listen to this and say, yeah, I want to hit that um, three and a half kilos. So as I've got some available cash flow, that's the next bottleneck I'm willing to tackle. And, you know, we've seen it with, with flooring. Some people are willing to go rubber because they feel that that investment pays. Um, others are not. Um, again, you've got to do the partial budgets for each of these things um, to see if you think there's enough return on investment. But it's, ad- it's additive. As you look at all the bottlenecks in your farm and you keep ticking off the, bu- the, the, um, the list, um, the list gets finer and finer. But that's, the, that's why we're all, or a lot of us are in this industry. It's fun. It's trying to yeah. figure out what the next challenge is because we haven't hit the goal. The, the horizon, the goal line keeps moving ahead of us a little bit. I've said this before and I'll probably say it again. I maybe sound like a broken record, but we do more harm to cows potential than cows do to their own. Like by we get in, what I mean by that is like we get in their way. Like we don't, the cow gets hot in the dry cow pen. So, but if we're not going to provide her with abatement, the cow can't fix that. So, I mean, we're, it's the old adage, you know, it's corn planting season. You know, when's the corn got the best, uh, genetic potential well when it's in the bag because as soon as you put it in the ground then the variables start right so i think the key to this three and a half kilo things is like you mentioned like eliminating bottlenecks so here's our goal at two kilos of fat and a kilo and a half of protein and what steps or what bottlenecks are we going to have to eliminate so that the cow can get to that potential because i think from a herd average it's that's a daunting number but there's cows and herds already doing way more than that. Like you get some fresh cows in these herds that are doing 70, 80, 90 kilos with 4% fat. Like they are, they're rock stars. Like they are just, they're just cruising. The question is how do we get a whole herd of cows to do that? Well, and I think this is, I think that exactly is a key. So if you look at your herd and you'll hear the bell curve. So you've, you've got the, say you're a 40 liter average right now. You've got cows that are 30 and you got cows that are 50. If you fix a lot of your bottlenecks, you might not have cows that are 60 or 70, but you'll have a lot less at 30. Yeah. And it just moves the entire average up. So there are, so think of all the things we've talked about already. The, uh, the combing, if you've got a boss cow, she will do well, no matter what she'll go in. She'll, if you're overcrowded, and you don't have enough bunk space, and you move your pens a lot, she'll go in and she'll make sure she gets feed, she gets a spot, <laughs> and she'll do well. It's yep. the cows that are the outliers, I like to call them. So if you can say, hey, what can I do to fix my outliers? And I would say probably the number one thing is overcrowding. And it yeah, starts absolutely. with all, all of your dry cows. If And there's lots of times that like, so think of fallen centers. There's lots of people who follow this. Um, hey, my, I have a hundred stalls and I'm going to run it at a uh, hundred cows. Well, geez, now it's fall incentives and I'm suddenly at 140 stalls and okay. Now fall incentives are off. I'm going to dry cows up and I'm going to sell some. Hmm. I'm down to 110 
and the tank didn't change. Yeah. Well, I, I think part of that too, like to the opposite of that is that a lot of times in the winter we see transition issues, but what happened two months before that, you know, yeah, people start we, drying cows up and overcrowding. You know what? Yeah. We don't need the milk. So let's dry up a bunch of cows. We'll overcrowd that far off pen for a while, you know, and I think it kind of, it rears its ugly head and, and we don't always think about it. Right. I think that so much of it comes back. Human nature is, um, you know, if you draw a line, we all want to see how far over the line we can go before we get burned. <laughs> so if I give you a number that says, you do that, oh, Chris, uh, never, <laughs> never. But if I say 110% is yep. okay, well, yeah. you'll do 125 just to see or 130. Yeah, why, why, yeah, why don't we try this? Yeah. And none of us realize that we've fallen over the cliff until it's too late. Yeah. Um, so I think it starts with dry cows. I think our milk cows, I th- and you see it. There's lots of great write-ups, studies, case studies, whatever you want to call them, where people have gone through expansions and they were really overcrowded before and they suddenly made more space. And suddenly, you know, milk went up, problems went away and you went, oh, wow, that's quite something. Yeah, it it happens all the time. Like, yeah, I got rid of five cows and my bulk tank went down for a day, but it's back right back up to where it was. And yeah, I think uh, overcrowding is a, it's a huge issue, but I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit here on a producer side of thing is that they've only got a finite amount of roof space and, you know, they're trying as a business to put as much out as possible and so how do we do this so that's you know those are the things where farmers start to well i'll overcrowd a little bit and you know we'll uh you know we'll we'll make it work and i know i've I've heard this in the u.s before and it's much more of the u.s mentality is you know we're at 120 percent all the time but if we go to 130 percent, yeah you know we're gonna see some more hoof issues our cows aren't gonna milk quite as well but we're putting more money out the door in milk and components um, then we would have been at 120. We might lose a little bit per cow, but you know what? It's okay. We're at the end of the day, our check's going to be a little bit bigger. So it's the old adage in the U.S. If uh, prices are low, milk more cows. If prices are high, milk more cows. Yep. <laughs> and I think that that exactly comes back to you know what I'm hoping to do with this MBA is again, you can't talk milk. We don't get paid for milk. We get paid for components. So yep. we, we've got to do better at coming back to, you know, how many, and, and again, you could say, well, um, I want to ship two kilos of butter fat. Well, we get paid. We still do get paid for protein. We can't ignore it. We've still yep. got to put it on the table. And then from there, everything is the balancing act is, you know, where is the sweet spot? And that's where we've all got to find with our management style. Um, there are some things that you can do with less management. So if you really undercrowd, then you don't have to manage as intensely. If you overcrowd, you're going to have to put more work in it to keep the animals healthy, to make the production out the other side. And so then that's one of the questions that, that you've got to ask yourself is, am I willing to do the work? And we get into the discussion again, um, what is more profitable, high production yeah. or low cost? And yeah. we've each got our biases on that, but that's one of the things that I'm hoping to to look at as well is, you know, can you draw that line 
of profitability. And does that situation change too? Like maybe, you know, if a producer sitting there looking at, okay, well, if I want to get to this goal of two and a half or th- sorry, three and a half kilos of components, you know, what am I going to have to compromise long, short term to get there long term? Like if I got to spend 10 more hours in a week in the barn to make this work until I can spend, so, like make a capital investment and spit and build a new barn, you know, I think that's, that's what these producers are wrestling with every day is, you know, how am I going to make my next step and what do I do have to do today to, uh, to meet, to meet my goals. So. Yep. And that's the other fun part of our industry is um, I've heard other consultants say that if you chase two rabbits, odds are you won't catch either. So you should only chase one (laughs) rabbit. Well, in the dairy industry, everyone chases four rabbits and surprisingly (laughs) usually catches as three. Like if you yeah. look at how many of these, I say it's a balancing act. We've just talked about 20 bottlenecks yeah. and ideally you should chase one and fix it. And then go on to the, if you talk to people, it, we're all working on it. We're working on it where we know that that's a problem. I can't yeah. totally fix it, but we're working on it. And that's the fun thing is we have seen so much progress in our industry over time because people are driven to keep chasing as many rabbits as they can. Yeah, I know. And uh, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, Chris. (laughs) Well, and that's what makes it fun, right? Well, and there's just so many things going on. You can't help it. Like they're just like, if you look at the modern day dairy producer, like they've got, they're running a multi-million dollar business and they're running a crop business and a feed business and, and worrying about cow health and worrying about employees and worrying about this and doing that. And like, it's just a never ending, uh, it's a never ending thing, but, uh, good on them for doing it. So, um, was there any final thoughts that you had uh, on, on any of the things that we talked about today to kind of, kind of drill that points home? You know, we want to, to see you be able to drive healthy, productive Ferraris and go through hundred miles an hour and have a shiny vehicle left at the end. And, you know, we're all on that journey. Everybody's a different stage. But I think we sum up a lot of what we talked about. You've got to make sure that transition is um, a priority if you're going to, to, to be productive at the end of the day. I think that's a great place to leave it, Chris. I uh, appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Um, I'm not sure uh, if you're a bugger for punishment or not, but uh, I sure appreciate it. And I look forward to working with you. And now I, know, I don't think we mentioned it earlier, oh, but Chris right. is working that's- in... Ontario with Trow on a part-time basis while he does his uh, MBA. So he's working as a consultant with us. So uh, I'm really happy to have uh, Chris on the team and be able to pick his brain and uh, draw from his experience and his knowledge to kind of help producers out there. So thanks again, Chris, and uh, everybody uh, stay safe out there. I know planting season's upon us, so uh, lots lots of things on the go. And uh, I just wanted to wish everybody a safe and happy planting season. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for listening. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the dairy team at Trow Nutrition Canada and our SureGain dealer partners. If you enjoyed today's episode, subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast player. And please leave us a review. If you'd like more information about today's discussions, please reach out. We have left our contact information in the show notes. I would also like to extend a special thanks to our sound engineer, Daniel Noguera. Thank you.